You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. For those that can't see in the back, there's just a little river of water down here. That don't get electrocuted on your way back up here. It's safe. Okay, good. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today. I'm sure Pastor Tyler also will be glad that we are near the end of January, right? We only have a couple days left this month that lasts all of, like, what, 57 days or something like that? Uh, this last, what, just a couple days ago was, they call it Quitter's Day now, where we all, like, most people can't get their New Year's resolutions passed this one day, and I'm like, well, yeah, like 30-day return policy, and we're on day like 58 of the month, so it's no shock that people give up, uh, because it's a long month. We've been bombarded with the buildup of the new year, this idea of, uh, you know, turning the calendar so we can make changes, we reflect on the last year, we take stock of what was good and what was bad, and what can we seek to make changes for the year ahead, and if I'm honest with you, I'm exhausted, and it's January 28th, so we buckle up. But likely, you've heard the phrase, uh, new year, new you, right? This idea that with the turning of the calendar, we can make any number of major strides in a variety of areas of our life. And actually, this year, I feel like I've heard a lot more of new year, same me. So this idea of, you know, turning away, maybe, from the weight and the pressure that comes uh, with a new me, and instead, I don't know, I think reacting out of what our culture's general philosophy of exhaustion over the last few years has been. Uh, In our ever-changing and fast-paced world, we are, I think, feeling less able to keep up and more aware of our preference for familiarity and and comfort. I'm sure I'm not the only one when I say that I find great comfort in control. So for me specifically, this really surfaces as my own ability to control an outcome in front of me, situations around me, such like that. But in a broader sense, it's this general feeling of safety and security, right? This idea that I can be unlikely to experience unrest or surprise in something. So I would say I'm definitely much more on board with New Year's same me uh, than I am the discomfort and fear and uncertainty that comes with a new me. Uh, This uh, feeling of comfort from familiarity really played out for our oldest son, Asher, this past year as he was starting second grade. Uh, And so for the first time in his school career, he was beginning a year with very little new for him. The past two years had been marked by a lot of change, specifically in his school as they were undergoing renovations. So he had been tossed around from a few places and so a new building. Uh, He also switched from a half-day kindergarten program to full days in first grade. So new classrooms, new buildings, new routines. Each year was marked by so much new, but this year he was gonna be a school pro. He was had a full year under his belt of eating lunch at school. He'd be going to in the same doors, playing on the same playground, walking the same halls, and it was delightful. Like his mother, Asher likes to have an idea of what's ahead. He likes to know the plans. He's much more comfortable with something new when he's prepared or given a warning. And so, as you can imagine, just the general transition from home to school was just overwhelming these last couple of years. And so this year was different 
There was so much familiarity for him. And as we came to this realization together, he and I, the relief we felt was palpable. I mean, I, as a parent, was just overjoyed at thinking about how much less anxious he was going to be when he started the year. And it was so fun to talk about what he was excited about because he knew what he was heading into. And so I'm proud to say his school year has been tremendous, a true testament to this idea of comfort from familiarity. If we're honest with ourselves, very, we all have very limited control over much of anything in our lives. Maybe you're facing this reality right now, a relationship, a job, a health issue maybe, financial situation, spiritual condition of someone that you care about, just sin that you just can't seem to kill. We all long for the comfort of familiarity that is all too fleeting on a daily basis. But here's the good news. From start to finish, the sum total of scripture testifies to the absolute sovereign control of God. God is in control of all things and all people in all times and all places. If that isn't the definition of ultimate comfort, I don't know what is. Listen to a couple other spots in scripture. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6 reads, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Later in Jeremiah 32.27 reads, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? God's sovereignty isn't just a theological slogan. It's a practical reality that should be familiar to each of us. The fact that God is sovereign has everything to do with how you and I live our lives day to day. Now here's the problem. You and I don't really believe that God is sovereign. We say he's in control. We want to believe he's in control. But when it comes down to it, we just don't truly believe. That's why we strive for control over the people and the situations and circumstances in front of us. That's why we have so much fear and we feel frequent anxiety about an unknown future. We simply don't believe God is sovereign. And this is why it is the most amazing news that God is who he says he is, regardless of whether or not we believe what he says about himself. This morning, we're gonna turn our attention to God's word and see an encouraging, reassuring, and convicting snapshot of the absolute sovereign control of God over a situation similar that to many that you and I will face and have faced. It's a story that many of us are familiar with, but in this new year, let's take a fresh look at the same sovereign God. So turn in your Bible or open your app to Matthew 14. We will be in verses 22 through 23. And the title of today's sermon is Jesus, the Sovereign Savior. Before we read, allow me to provide a little bit of context here. So Jesus has been teaching, preaching, healing, and the crowds continue to grow. Now through it all, Jesus is helping his new disciples uh, understand more about who he is. We often forget that the 12 that Christ called had much of the same questions as we do, as the people in these crowds did. Uh, they really wondered, who, really, who is this guy? You know, He's making some very serious claims. He's teaching with tremendous and unquestionable authority, performing mind-blowing miracles. So really, who is he and just how great is he? So as we drop into the text, Jesus has just finished feeding over 10,000 people in miraculous fashion with just five loaves and two fish. 
What happens next is a clear, extent, clear picture of the extent of Jesus' sovereign power in the lives of his people. So the first point we're going to see is that Jesus is sovereign even when I worry. Let's read verses 22 through 25. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves, because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. So Matthew doesn't tell us exactly why he sent the disciples away uh, there with such urgency, but over in the Gospel of John, the account of this story in chapter 6 does offer a little bit of clarity. Uh, the crowd was so amazed by this feeding miracle, of course, that they wanted to make him their king. Now, the problem was this was different from God's plan, and he didn't want the disciples thinking that he had come as some sort of military messiah, and so he just sent them away. Now, we'd do well to heed his motive here because as a culture, we have a real horrible way of fashioning our own Jesus in whatever way we see fit. But our perception of Jesus isn't open for personal opinion. Jesus must be understood the way he reveals himself in his word, or he's simply not the one true Jesus that we're following. So determined to protect their perception, Jesus puts them in a boat and sends them out on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, let's look at verse 23 again. It reads, after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. So much can be learned from these simple narrative details. Have you ever stopped to think about how really truly uh, like humbling and awesome it is that Jesus was so committed to prayer? I don't know about you, but it is very easy for me to overassume my own capacity and my capability. I would not ever want to admit it out loud and definitely don't want you in my mind when I think it, but it's easy for me to get to a place where I think, I'm good, I've got this, it's under control, I don't need God. And you know how you've slipped into that place? You stop praying. Prayer is, by definition, a confession of dependence. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray while ministering here on this earth, then you better believe that you need to also. Whether we feel it or not, we have to pray because we are desperate for God's help. Until prayer is born out of necessity, it won't happen with frequency. So if your prayer life is dry or diminished, the quickest way to fire that back up is to lean into how desperate you are for God's hand and help in your life. Get familiar with the comfort that comes from a relationship with God. Jesus knew he was dependent on the Father, and as a result, he got away alone to pray with him. So he's up on a mountain, pouring out his heart and mind to the Father. Let's check back in with the disciples. Verse 24, meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. Now, Matthew does include here a very high level of detail in order to convey the state that the disciples were in when Jesus came to them. Weary. Weary from fighting for control in a situation they simply had no control over. Verse 24 notes that by this time, they were a long distance from land. Again, over in John 6, it mentions three or four miles from shore. They likely had been caught off, driven off course by the strong headwind and had been battered by the waves. Furthermore, 25, verse 25 says that Jesus came to them very early in the morning, or again, in the fourth watch of the night. 
So these would have been some crazy tired men. Imagine rowing against a headwind for what was probably at least six to eight hours straight. <laughs> Show of hands, how many of you have a rowing machine or use a rowing machine at the gym? They have become a much more common piece of fitness equipment now, and so, uh, you know, for any onlooker, they seem fairly harmless. Pretty easy, right? You uh, sit down and you get going. It seems like it's kind of no big deal. About mm, five minutes go by, and then you start to realize you're stuck. Surely, your arms are about to detach from your body. You're breathing at a rate you only thought possible for marathon runners, and if you're honest, you're holding back tears because you are genuinely afraid you just don't know how to make it stop. <laughs> Rowing is like torture. So think about this. this deci these disciples had had a long day of taxing ministry and now hours on these roars, oars, and they are weary, worn out, and wiped. Some of us in the room are weary right now. We set out just a few weeks ago with the hopes of a new year, new me, and that seems blown already. We're weary from trying to practice a level of control we simply don't possess. When we forget or doubt that God is in control, we step in and we seek to take control ourselves. Every time we worry, we assume God's job. It's tiring trying to be God. Maybe what's worn you out has less to do with your particular problem and more to do with your attempt to control it. Jesus is sovereign even when you worry, but that's not all. Our second point is that Jesus is sovereign even when I worry. Look again at verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It's easy to assume a little bit of a condescending attitude here toward the disciples, you know, those silly guys. What were they afraid of? Of course it was Jesus coming to them. Why would they be so shocked? That's the attitude we assume when we get a little too familiar with stories of the Bible. And so when we read, we really need to climb into the situation. I saw a reel on Instagram the other day about how now is the time of year to make sure you're friends with someone who has access to Lake Powell. So whether that is a boat or property or some combination of the two, uh, this is the time. It was mocking this idea that if you, don't, if you don't make those friends now, you're gonna miss out, miss out on this time on the water. So imagine you've locked in that spot on the pontoon boat when all of a sudden a human being just comes walking up to you. And by the way, it's the middle of the night and in the middle of a storm. You're probably looking for a weapon, not wondering if he wants to come aboard and join the party. It's like how our six-year-old still has occasional nights uh, that he will silently come walking into our room and just stand simply next to my side of the bed until I shock awake at the mere sense of his presence there. And I will tell you, it is terrifying every time. And that is what happens here. These men have been rowing for hours. They were physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. And they see someone or something walking on the water. The Greek word translated ghost here refers to a spirit appearance or apparition. There is a high probability that they already assumed that there was something supernatural and evil at work. So to see a human form walking on the water, they were definitely understandably terrified. Fear is the first thing we feel when we realize that we have lost control. Maybe there's someone here right now who struggled through yet another sleepless night last night because of the fear of an unknown future. If that's you, 
hear Jesus telling you the same thing he told them. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The phrase, it is I, is the same emphatic pronoun used uh, here as in the Old Testament by God when he was uh, revealing himself in places like Exodus 3.14 when he tells Moses, I am who I am. This was a claim of divinity. It's Jesus saying, I'm God, I'm sovereign, I'm with you. The presence of Jesus with us should remove any fear in us. Jesus is sovereign even when I worry. And finally this, Jesus is sovereign even when I wonder. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was terrified. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly you are the Son of God. We oftentimes emphasize the seemingly endless number of Peter's failures throughout the New Testament, right? But the significance of his faith here shouldn't be minimized. Poor Peter is going to have a bone to pick with some teachers in heaven as he's like, really? I did a little bit of good. Do we not get any recognition? Uh, this simply had to be one of the most overwhelming moments in Peter's life, and sadly, it was short-lived. Look at verse 30. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Within mere moments, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and is overwhelmed by the effects of the wind around him. His faith falters, and he sinks. All it took was a split second for Peter to think that the wind was greater than God who had enabled him to walk on the water. Notice, Peter's faith in the person of Jesus didn't falter. It was his power that Peter doubted. Peter is certain that this is Jesus. He's just not sure Jesus is as powerful as this wind that's been owning them. When we think about someone struggling with their faith, we tend to picture someone who is struggling to believe the reality of God, right? Or struggling to believe that Jesus was or is who he says it is. But more commonly, we doubt God's character and capability. So quickly, here are five ways our faith falters. Number one, we believe God can't. We cannot even begin to comprehend the magnitude of God's power, and so it is very easy for us to just think, I can't do it, you can't do it, God can't do it. Number two, we believe God won't. Again, we don't have faith of the magnitude that we should, and so we simply fall into thinking he's just not going to. Number three, we believe God is preoccupied. How often do we comfort ourselves by thinking, yeah, yeah, this is hard or this is bad, but they have it worse, or this is harder for them. God surely is busy helping them, doesn't have time for me. Number four, we believe God is displeased. It's very easy to recognize, I did something wrong, he's not happy with me, he's not going to follow through. Or finally, we believe God is tapped. We all live in this culture right now that is seemingly growing more and more challenging and more and more difficult, and we are tired. So, of course, easy to believe, God's got to be tapped too. While Peter made the mistake of taking his eyes off Jesus, wondering if he was capable of protecting him from the storm, he did recover with the right decision to call out to him for help. Look again at verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
You know what I love here is that Peter's doubt caused him to sink, but not Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus isn't dependent on your faith. Peter cried out right in the midst of his crisis of faith, and Jesus reached out to him immediately. He didn't scold him. He didn't make him jump through hoops. He didn't say, hey, have a little more faith, then I'll help you out. Peter cried. Jesus, who never ceased to be in control, reached out his hand and lifted Peter up. Now notice Jesus doesn't overlook Peter's failure. Instead, he makes him face it. You of little faith, why did you doubt? The word doubt in Greek suggests trying to go in two directions simultaneously or serving two masters. Uh, Many of you may not know, but my formal education and background is in elementary education in speech language pathology. I knew from a very young age that education was my mission field and I was passionate about it. I still am. But I found myself doubting this during my senior year of college. Not because I wasn't doing well or I wasn't enjoying my full year of student teaching. The contrary, actually, I was truly loving this and finding myself very happy with my career choice. Uh, But I was beginning applications for grad school to get my master's in speech-language pathology with the intention of teaching in a classroom designed for students with speech and language difficulties. It was a great plan. It was comfortable. It was familiar. It was perfect. Now, simultaneously, I had become deeply involved with a campus ministry that had been crucial in my spiritual development and growth. I had taken on something of an administrative role as a student leader and specifically gravitating toward events and operations. I was recognizing it was a space for me to exercise this whole other area of giftedness and enjoyment that I hadn't pursued otherwise. I'd even had a few conversations with people about the potential of pursuing a role on staff with this ministry instead of grad school and teaching. And if I'm honest, few things have scared me more in my life than those internal doubts I was having as I contemplated this plan that I had held so dear. And there I was standing at a conference over my winter break that year, and I was feeling the very real pull of trying to go in two directions simultaneously. The theme at the conference I was at was you can't walk standing still, speaking to this exact idea that you can't expect to thrive in two spaces at the same time. I was very much doubting my future. Like Peter, I was about to sink. You see, doubt is not denial. It's an internal debate. Faith, on the other hand, is the decision to drop the doubt. Many of us, myself included, have said, I want to have this faith. I just don't feel it. Listen, faith isn't a feel thing. It's a do thing. Faith isn't a feeling, it's a choice. Now, in case the ending isn't clear, after my come to Jesus moment at that conference, I ended up choosing to consider something other than teaching. I chose, by faith, to join staff with this campus ministry and serve one year uh, with staff and students nationally on a national conference operations team. That step of faith turned into one of the greatest gifts I've been given, over 15 years on staff, serving in a capacity that has been more life-giving than much anything else I've done to date. So, will you drop the doubt and choose faith this morning? Peter did, and Jesus immediately saved him. He climbed back in the boat. There's no more question, doubting, wondering. They knew Jesus is God and he is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign even when I'm weary, even when I worry, even when I wonder. And so here's our big idea. 
Jesus is sovereign over every situation I face. So maybe for you, this is a new year and a new you. And maybe not. But in either case, we must remember, it's a new year, but the same God. The same almighty, sovereign God who loves us more than we can imagine, who longs to catch us when we sink. The same God who strengthens us when we're weary, comforts us when we worry, and welcomes us when we wonder. So may we all rest in the comfort and familiarity of God's sovereign control. Let's pray. Father, this morning each one of us uh, longs to have this faith, longs to make choices and decisions to choose you over our doubts and our fears. Some of us have very real things in our minds right now that this is a thing. We feel very pulled and one direction is scary and one direction is unknown. So Lord, I pray today that you would give us the courage to recognize, give us the faith to see that you are here, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. You always have been and you always will be. In your name we pray, amen.